Hi, everyone. Welcome to Seth Rudetsky's Back to School. This week, I have Noah Wiley, who... <laughs> We just discovered, well, basically, James and I are always so behind the times. Like, not that long ago, we finally watched this newfangled show called Oz. We're like, wow, the show is great. Same thing with, like, Desperate Housewives. This show's got something. Like, we're always behind the times. So we did this live stream for the Actress Fund called Stars in the House, where, you know, we do, um, we have reunions and stuff. And we scheduled an ER reunion with Noah and George Clooney, Julie, uh, Juliana Margulies, and Gloria Rubin, and we'd never seen ER. So we're like, we're going to give it a try. Anyway, it turns out, A, we love the show. B, Noah is so good on the show. So now we love Noah Wiley, and um, also Anthony Edwards was on it. We love him too. But the point is, we now love Noah Wiley, and he'll be on this week. And at one point, you'll hear in his high school travails, he talks about taking his driver's test. And, you know, I was so, it's so funny to look back on this, because I loved driving. I loved learning how to drive. I pass my driver's test so easily. But my mom, you know, I'm the youngest in the family. And I think there's always been sort of like, oh, Seth can't, like, they kind of still think of me as five years old. Like when I was a little kid and my siblings were playing with their friends, I remember Nancy would always announce, okay, everybody, we're playing hide and go seek. Seth is playing too, but he's too young, so he doesn't count. It was like a way to protect me because I couldn't run as fast, but I was still playing. So it'd be me running away from people, but no one was interested. It was so depressing. So that's kind of how I think driving was treated in my house. It was a lot of like, oh, you're too young to drive. And I was like, no, but I have my license. And then my mother kept using this excuse. She's like, oh, I've got to put you on the insurance policy. And I'm like, well, can you do it this week? She's like, sure will. And basically 20 years passed. So I kind of haven't driven since I got my driver's license. I drove a little bit, but I've been basically petrified ever since I got my driver's license. And it's really, I really completely blame my mom for it. And it really reminds me of this episode. This is totally dating me. But there was an episode of One Day at a Time where Bonnie Franklin, who was the lead, was with her mother, played by Nanette Fabray. And her mother also, I guess, thought Bonnie Franklin couldn't drive kind of the way my mother does. And Bonnie Franklin storms into the apartment with her mom. And she's like, mother! The next time we're driving together and you're in the passenger seat, never, never put your foot on the brake. <laughs> I think it's so hilarious that her mother literally reached over and used the brake. It's very much me and my mom. Hashtag unhealthy. All right. Enjoy Seth Rudetsky's Back to School. Dreading morning classes. Stealing bathroom passes. Football. Drivers and SATs. Bullies that attack me. Why do I have that? Jockstraps, training bras, frenemies. We remember back then, it's like freshman year again. Ready, steady, now you're in it. Pencil stop this any minute. Zach Rudetsky's back to school with Noah Wiley. Now! Hello, everyone. It's Seth Rudetsky. My guest today is an Emmy and Golden Globe nominated actor. You know him from Pirates of Silicon Valley. The Librarians, currently Leverage Redemption. There's a positive spin at the end. And of course, John Carter from ER. Noah Wiley. Hi, Noah. Hi, Seth. Thanks for coming. Are you kidding? It's entirely my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, first things first. Where did you go to high school? When did you graduate? I went to a boarding school in uh, Ojai, California, called the Thatcher School, and I graduated in 1989. Did you go to boarding school because you were troubled and you were uh, delinquent or because you are pretentious? I might think I'm guilty on both counts, if that's possible. I was definitely what was deemed an at-risk youth, I think, by my parents, and they wanted me to be in a more sequestered environment. But I think uh, I took to it like a duck to water with all my pretensions. It was a good incubator for all my pretensions. So wait, so this boarding school was actually to help troubled kids? It wasn't just like, we want to you know, get you into medical school? No, no, no. Well, you know, 
It was not designed for troubled kids. It was founded in 1889 by a guy named Sherman Dave Thatcher, who was an Eastern educator who came West with the philosophy that, uh, and this is true, that there was something about horses that was great for the education of a young mind. So he had this philosophy that there's something about the outside of a horse that's good for the inside of a boy was the motto. And so that was what the school was founded on. Is this, you, it was sort of a cowboy school where you show up and they teach you how to ride horses and you camp. And in addition to a rigorous academic schedule, it was sort of develop the mind, develop the body philosophy. And I graduated in what was the centennial class. It was founded in 1889. I graduated in 1989. Two things I want to say. They're still doing horse therapy with troubled kids, and I do think it works. However, no, I have to say... We're Jewish and we don't do things like that. So what's the deal? Did they know that there's some Judaism going on with you or did you, could you pass? Well, I had an atypical upbringing. I was raised in Los Angeles, but my grandfather in 1959 bought a cattle ranch just north of Fresno, California, believing that there would one day be a population explosion. He doubled down on land. And he also was a Jewish cowboy. He really liked going up on the weekends and putting on a cowboy hat and riding around in a Jeep. So we were all raised kind of like half city, half country mice. And so uh, we knew how to ride before I got there. That was part of the incentive. And my sister went there before I did. So I started, I was a freshman when she was a senior. I came in on her heels. So what was your relationship like with your parents before that? Because your parents weren't really with you when you were in high school. So your relationship had to be formed before that. What was it like? Well, there's a joke, you know, if you ask most boring school students any question, it's, you know, when did your parents get divorced? (laughs) Because it's sort of a neutral ground to go to if you live up going back and forth between two houses and living out of a suitcase. The idea of going to a place that's neutral, that you can have some agency over your own life, is really attractive. And so that's what we all opted for. And uh, you came home on vacations. But, you know, great relationship with our parents. Just we weren't fans of going back and forth in the custody arrangements. So we preferred a little autonomy and independence. So give me a typical day in boarding school. Like when I was in high school, my mother had to like shake me the hell awake. Were you in charge of getting yourself up and everything? Yeah, self-reliance was a big part of the school. You know, you got up in your freshman year, it's compulsory to have a horse. So you get up at six to go out and muck out the stall and feed your horse and take care of it before you feed yourself, you feed your horse. And then you clean your room and then you go to breakfast and then you start your academic day and then that finishes and then you go out and you ride your horse and then you feed your horse again and then you take a shower and then you show up for a formal dinner or then you go to study and then you get screw around with your friends and you go to sleep and you kind of do that every day. And then you get more freedom on the weekends and maybe a Wednesday afternoon. I was going to say, I'm thrown by the cleaning of the room and the formal dinner. Like, it sounds like you're in a military academy and it sounds like I do not want to go to the school ever. Well, it's so funny. You know, I grew up with a huge anti-authoritarian bent. So if there was a rule, my job was to figure out how to get around it. And so my entire academic career was engaged in exactly that pursuit. And now that I'm a father, my son just graduated from this school and they've lessened so many of these things. And now I'm the other side. You know, I'm sort of a stickler for the old ways. And I remind myself of the graduates from the 30s and 40s who used to walk around campus when I was there going, we didn't have indoor plumbing. You know, we didn't have roofs. Thinking that we were the softest generation they'd ever seen. And now it only gets softer. So how did you break the rules? I mean, wouldn't you get kicked out if you broke rules? 
Yeah, I learned that if you were going to break a rule, don't tell anybody and try not to have an accomplice because a partner was always a recipe for disaster. So I, I consider myself a bit of a loner who desperately wanted to belong. I had a couple of good friends, but I spent a lot of time by myself. And uh, the rules that we broke, you know, were, you know, smoking and sneaking off when you weren't supposed to. And it wasn't grand larceny, pranky kind of stuff, you know. What was the most trouble you got in in the school? Well, I had a friend who had graduated and I wanted to go see him. He was having a party off campus in Santa Barbara. And so I wanted to go. I called my sister who had graduated and said, do you mind if I use staying with you as my cover story when I go to this party? My sister said, fine. So I went to the party and I got back to school late, late enough that I hadn't fed my horse. And when the head of the horse department asked me why I hadn't fed my horse, I lied and said that my sister had had car trouble getting me back to campus since she had been my excuse. And I didn't realize that my sister kept in touch with the head of the horse department. And a week later, when the head of the horse department asked my sister about her car trouble, my sister didn't know what the hell she was talking about. And honesty was a big deal at this school. You were allowed to take unproctored exams and you, you know, there were no locks on doors. So telling the truth was a big deal. And I think they kind of wanted to get me for a lot of other stuff. And this was the one thing they had. So that was the most trouble I got into is I had to do a, <laughs> a form of work called trail crew, where you basically take a kind of like a machete and a canteen of water and they send you up to a trail that's been closed for a really long time and tell you to open it. <laughs> you had to clear the trail with your machete? Clear the trail, yeah. By the end, so yeah, I got 27 hours of trail crew. So oh. you, and that was how I spent a lot of Saturdays doing trail crew. And I know you wanted to be an actor, but what was happening academically? Were you excelling at academics? No, I was way in over my head at that school academically and really sort of so much interested in the social aspect that I forgot that we had to study too. So I was put on academic probation early and had to dig myself out of a big hole after my freshman year. I graduated with a decent GPA, but by the time I was ready to graduate, I was also totally disinterested in going to college and wanting to start my career. So it's the day after I graduated, I got an apartment on Hollywood Boulevard with my best friend and we declared ourselves professionals. Oh, so that must have been scandalous because wasn't the whole point of the school to aim you towards college? It was to aim you towards self-sufficiency and self-agency. And, you know, living on my own for four years, doing my own laundry, you know, not relying on my parents day to day to help me or solve my problems. I was felt really ready. And also, there was a good theater department at the school, but it was really bare bones, which left us a lot of freedom to do whatever we wanted. So I kind of took over my junior and senior year and did whatever I wanted, directing plays, and I wrote a couple of plays, and I, you know, so my confidence was supremely high, leaving this incubated bubble where I was kind of a big fish, you know. I didn't know how big the world was, and, you know, I learned. So you were the big acting fish, but it sounds like socially you always felt like you were struggling. The paradox is I'm somebody who desperately wants to belong, but is pathologically suspicious of joining anything. I both want to be in the group, but I don't like groups. So who were your actual friends? Who did you hang out with? Ironically, I still keep in touch with a few of them today, but they're all different and they all do different things. I have a real cross-section of friends, a lot of different kinds of people. And what would you guys do for funsies? You're in this boarding school like what would you do play parcheesi sports you know stuff that guys do light your farts on fire you know <laughs> eat chips <laughs> so immature 
Yeah. And did you have a roommate? I never had a roommate. You could have had a roommate, but I, I never wanted to live with anybody. Sounds very isolation-y. And, you know, this horse that you had to hang out with, did you actually love your horse or was it just sort of like it was a responsibility? Both. I came into the school excited to ride. And my sister, who was a very competitive rider, she was actually the number one rider in the school. They had a club called the Green Jacket Club, the top 10 riders in the school who competed every year in these big Jim Connor rodeo events. Got numbered one through 10. My sister was the number one rider. And so I came in really anxious to knock her off her pedestal. And I'm pretty sure she gave me the worst horse in the school to just nullify the competition. Not the terrible horse, but she gave me a horse that's a kind of a horse called a Tennessee Walker, which is a breed that was raised, bred in the South on plantations to go very long distances with a very comfortable seat. So they don't bounce very much at all. They have a really kind of specific gait that's almost like a shuffle, very smooth. But they can't gallop. They can't go any faster than this one particular gate. So it's like a really fast trot. And if you try to get them to break that, you're going against their natural breeding and you can kind of mess them up. So uh, I tapped out at about second gear my freshman year in terms of speed. Yes, that's the kind of horse I want. I don't want a horse going fast and throwing me off it and I hurt my neck. Tennessee Walker is your horse. Just deliver him to my house. I'm in New York City. Okay, let me ask you, was there a moment in high school that you feel was like a before and after? It was the summer program between my junior and senior year where I attended this program called the Chero Program that Northwestern University sponsors for high school theater students. And I got accepted and I went. And it was the first time that I felt like I was with a community of kids that were a lot more like me than the community that I had been living with. They spoke my language. They got my references. They had my sense of humor. They had my dreams and aspirations. We all were ambitious. And when I realized that this was a tribe that I could really be part of and kind of hold my own in competitively. I went back my senior year just really focused on where I wanted to go. And because all the rest of my friends were sweating over college applications and what their futures were going to be, I felt like I had this leg up on everybody else where I just I knew exactly where I wanted to go. So you actually didn't even apply to college? I applied to Yale and I applied to Northwestern. I got rejected from Yale, even with a recommendation letter written by Henry Winkler, former alumnus. Wait, how did you get the funds to write your recommendation? His stepson, Jed, and I had been really, really, really good friends all through elementary school. And I kind of grew up going over to Henry and Stacy's house a lot when I was a kid. And he was always extremely kind to me and very supportive of my aspirations and was gracious enough to write a recommendation letter that got me nowhere. And he was a Yale alumni. Oh, that is so rude. Okay, so after they were like, no, to his A, what happened? You got into Northwestern? I got waitlisted at Northwestern. <gasps> I just, I think I applied to appease my parents to say like, okay, I tried it. And I went for two schools that I had very little chance of getting into because I really just wanted to, I had a theory at the time, I don't know if you remember this, but Brooke Shields and Jennifer Beals, there were a lot of actors at the time who had left their careers and gone back to college. Princeton. Yes. So the theory was, why do I have to go now? Why don't I go start my career and get my foot in the door? And then once I've sort of established myself, I'll go get the education, but I won't be a newcomer when I come back and I won't be starting my career at 25 with everybody else trying to break in at the hardest age. I'll start as a kid, basically. And Dead Poets Society had just come out, so there was a lot of work for young men at the time. That was sort of in, in fashion. So that was the game plan I convinced my parents on. And then I just never went. So when do you begin Yale? <laughs> as soon as they accept me, still haven't accepted. Sons of bitches. Okay, uh, what about any broken bones, any accidents? 
Yeah, I had a horrible, I was wrestling with a guy that was bigger and stronger than me named Hoyt Wilson. We were messing around outside the math science building and he, Hoyt picked me up and he body slammed me down on my right shoulder, <gasps> which even though I was laying on my side, I was staring straight ahead at my shoulder <gasps> and it was terribly dislocated. And that was, uh, that ended my basketball career at the school. I was really excited. I was a good basketball player. And then that dislocation, I had to do physical therapy the whole rest of my year. There. When it was dislocated, did they have to do that hard thing where they shove it back into position? Hoyt shoved it back in with his boot. Hoyt? And, Wait, uh, with his boot? And then I he went, kicked you or he helped? And then I went, no, no, he kind of stepped on my body with one foot and then kind of pushed it in with his other foot because he could see and then popped back in. And he said, that happens to be sometimes. Um, I know you want to be an actor. Who were the stars you were looking up to? Well, I grew up watching a lot of the oldies. My mother always told me that I had this Jimmy Stewart quality, and she loved Jimmy Stewart. So I grew up watching a lot of Jimmy Stewart movies. And then one of the first jobs I ever did was with an actor who I love named Vincent D'Onofrio. And he spoiled me rotten by telling me that I, the way I acted with my eyes reminded him of Montgomery Clift. So I went off the cliff in a deep way for a long time, and I just couldn't get enough Montgomery Cliff. I haven't done much episodic TV, but one of the only episodes I did was Law & Order CI opposite Vincent D'Onofrio. And weirdly, he told me the way I acted with my mouth was like Montgomery Cliff. So it's like he just finds a body part and connects it to Montgomery Cliff. That's weird. That's so cold. <laughs> <laughs> That's literally his go-to to make his fellow actor feel comfortable. He just name drops. Um, it's all good. So good. Okay, let me ask you, what about Driver's Ed? Driver's Ed I took from Mr. Knight, and uh, I failed my driver test the first time I took it because my cousin took hers this before me, and she left the car in drive, which I didn't realize, so I couldn't even turn the ignition on. And the guy sat there and saw the problem, and I checked everything else. I checked the radio. I checked the windshield oh. wipers. I checked the seat belts. And then I finally got it turned on. It was so flustered that I pulled out the exit and almost hit a car coming in, and he said, <gasps> okay, we're done. And then all my friends had cars, so I didn't. I didn't really get a license until I was 18, out of school and needing one to get to a job. How mad at you were you, your stupid cousin? Mad to this day because she f still refuses to accept responsibility for it. Not that this is still fresh, but it is totally her fault. What memory in school made you feel like a grown-up? Like I remember having cash in my wallet. I was like, wow, that's what it's going to be like to be an adult, man. I did a production of Our Town my junior year. I played the stage manager. And that was the big performance that turned everything around where parents of kids came up to me and said, you know, I just saw a production of this and you were better than the guy that we saw do it. And kids who would never talk to me were like, you were good, Wiley. You know, and that feeling was insane. And one of the parents who saw me had some connection to Milos Forman, who was directing the movie Valmont at the time. Wow. And he got me, he said, if you can make it down to L.A. on Tuesday at 11 o'clock, they'll see you for this part. And so I snuck off campus and I took a Greyhound bus down to L.A. And I went to the Chateau Marmont and I had a photograph of myself from our town and a list of the plays that I'd done on the back of the envelope. And I went up to Ellen Chenoweth's hotel room and she answered the door and she kind of looked me over, talked to me for a second, said, and then said, OK, let's go meet Milos. And we went up to another suite where Milos Forman was there. And I handed him my picture and my resume. And he says, this is your picture? This is your resume? And I said, you know, yes. And 
I never read, but we had this meeting for about an hour, and then I left. And on the way home, I was counting the money that I was going to be making as this star of this movie. You know, I had every, I didn't conceive, it was inconceivable that I wouldn't get it. But I went back to campus just feeling like I had arrived. Never heard anything else about the movie, but that was my first sort of experience into being considered good enough by a stranger to go for a part that obviously I had no business going for, but that showed me that it was possible that I could if I kept on the road that I was on. Wow. And do we know who got the parts? Henry Thomas, I think, from E.T. got it. He wasn't the first guy that got it. They gave it to a guy named C.B. Barnes, who played Greg Brady in the Brady Bunch movies, I believe. And I don't think he could do it for whatever reason. And then Henry Thomas was was eventually cast. I lost two parts to Henry Thomas. He played the youngest brother in... uh, Legends of the Fall, another part that I was really close on. Let's just say you were third choice. You were that close. I had a lot of being six-man-off-the-bench opportunities where I came close to getting the job, and then the actor got the job, fell out, and they called me because I was the next choice. So my advice to young actors is don't get disheartened if you come close because sometimes that actor shows up or gets double-booked, and they, they call you, and then you got to deliver. But the movie Swing Kids was that way for me. The movie A Few Good Men was that way for me. I was um, not the first choice, but right there in line, runner-up. Wow, great attitude about that, too. I love it. Okay, so wait a minute. So I want to hear about girls, because where the hell were the girls? Were you dating your horoscope? Um, young romantic, you know, desperately pining for several people. Unrequited love was the thing that I sort of had the most success with. But I did date, you know, in high school. I didn't have one serious girlfriend the whole time, but I had uh, a lot of infatuations. You know, I was sort of young and Byronic and trying to be a young actor and trying to figure out how to make that appealing. (laughs) What was the biggest heartbreak? The biggest heartbreak? Uh, There was uh, a girl who was in our school who I just could not get to pay any attention to me whatsoever. And I made a very bold move after I graduated. Her father lived in Switzerland and my family was going to Europe and I kind of went over to make a big play on her doorstep and it really blew up in my face. Wait a minute. While you were in Europe, you went to the Switzerland Chateau and were like, knock, knock, knock? Yeah, I showed up at the train station in the small town in Appenzell and Geis, way up in the mountains outside of Zurich, late. And I called the house and uh, her sister answered the phone and was shocked that I was there. And when she gave the phone to her sister, her sister was not happy that I was there. And their father was not happy that I was there, but they agreed to take me in and house me for a day or two until I could make my arrangements. And then they spoke only in German and only to each other. And we'd sit there and silently watch Knight Rider on TV dubbed in German. And on my second night, I thought, this is so pathetic. And I packed my little bag and tucked my copy of Love in the Time of Cholera under my arm and walked down the hill to the train station and went back to Zurich. Did she know you were actually interested in her? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. God. And where is she now? And is she a fan of ER? Triumph. <laughs> I guess if ER wasn't translated into German, she might not even know to this day. So Fair enough. We'll Fair see. Point. Okay, so hold on. What about the prom? Did you get to go to the prom with some chick? No prom in our school. We had dances, but no prom. So dance was just sort of mingling and like maybe you'd like make out. Yeah, and they were really kind of student thrown. You know, you'd make a what you thought was a good dance mixtape and, you know, throw it on in the gym and turn off the lights, basically. And did you ever like sneak a chick back to your room and were you busted? 
Never in my room. Occasionally, we had open houses where you could go in the other, you could check out the rooms. But there was a woman who was married to my high school history teacher who worked in the admissions office. And she became a friend of mine. And she gave me the key to her office, which I hid above the door jam. And her office had shag carpeting and a space heater and a skylight. And so if I needed a room or a place to go that had privacy, I had her office. Wait, she literally was like, if you ever have a girl you want to something, something, here's the key to my office? Yeah. And it wasn't Mrs. Robinson style? She wasn't like, I'll be that girl? No, I don't think so. And was that shag carpet ever used? Noah? Uh, yeah. <gasps> oh my God, it's so scandalous. Well, it was very chaste. It was all very kind of like, you're feeling like you're getting away with something just by sneaking into a, an administrative office, you know? Oh, so it was just used for like a makeup. No, it wasn't. Let's see how we could defile this office and, you know, okay. in every way, shape, or form. It was very sweet. So you remember your actual first kiss and what was it like? First kiss? No, yes. romantic kiss. Well, yeah, not your aunt, not Aunt Nachum. I mean, like, you know. Yeah, probably seventh grade after a dance. Seventh grade? Yeah, is that late? That's early. I had like a bite plate and I was like 20 pounds overweight. I wasn't kissing anybody. Yeah, but we were playing, you know. Spin the bottle and seven minutes in heaven and all those party games, you, you know, you got to go in the closet with Tammy or, you know. So you smooch someone? Was, did it feel romantic or did it just feel weird? No, I felt like, you know, if you don't do it, your friends are going to all laugh at you. So she's is probably less into it than you are. And you kind of hold the kiss for a couple of seconds and then go out and then everybody claps, right? Whoa, they totally did it. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the first romantical kiss? I think it must have been my freshman year of high school. I had a girlfriend uh, for a couple of weeks and we took long walks and French kissed. And then I, I was terrified, terrified. Yeah. But once you did it, were you still terrified? More terrified because then, you know, what's next? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, very sweet. You were an innocent. I was. And I think I just, you know, I've always had a performative aspect to my to my personality. Oh my God. It's not a show. <laughs> Life has always been a show. It's time for This or That. In this segment, I make my guest choose between two pop culture sensations from their high school years. Fashion-wise, were you Reebok or Nike? We had K-Swiss. Do you remember K-Swiss tennis shoes? What? No. It was Reebok or Nike. Those are the big ones. Case, what is this, some boarding school pretentious thing? No, we also had Doc Martens, too. You didn't mention Doc Martens. Doc Martens, yes, but those weren't sneakers. Doc Martens were like that cool, I'm a hipster. I always have worn the same sneaker, which is Jack Purcell's. So I wear Converse Jack Purcell's. In terms of UK too cool for school bands, were you Pet Shop Boys, Simple Minds, or U2? Well, U2 was just starting. Kind of Unforgettable Fire was just coming on. Simple Minds was Breakfast Club soundtrack, very popular tune at the time. But when those bands were all happening, I was more the kind of madness, the selector. I was a ska kid. I liked English Beat and uh, The Jam. So were you listening to this? Were you a Walkman or a Boombox kid? Walkman. Coolest, of course. And would you make your own mixtapes? Yes, I still make my own mixtapes. My wife and I give each other mixtapes and CDs. We both have the ability to make tapes and CDs still for each other. We decorate the jewel boxes for each other, and just like we're kids. Instead of just making a playlist, you still make them actual CDs? Yeah. <laughs> That's very sweet, very old school. 
Um, okay, in terms of sort of women-centric TV shows, were you Golden Girls or Cagney and Lacey? Cagney and Lacey. How come? I thought uh, Sharon Glass was really hot, and I thought Tyne Daly was great. And I loved, I loved that show, you know. I, I was a big Hill Street Blues fan. Thursday night, 10 o'clock on NBC, whether it was or St. Ellsworth, those kind of dramas were just cracked to me when I was a kid. And Cagney and Lacey kind of fell into that, that pattern. And you love those kind of dramas. How crazy that you wound up being in one of the most famous weekly dramas ever. On that time slot, I know. It was uh, pretty funny. Pretty amazing. It's like you, Oprah Winfrey, secreted it. <laughs> My wife says I have incredible powers of manifestation for both good and bad. Well, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I like the sentence at the very end. Okay, um, in terms of good British singers, Duran Duran or George Michael? George Michael is a solo artist for show. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I can remember when Father Figure hit slow dancing with a friend of my sister's and then it stopped and it was the greatest dance I'd ever had. And then the guy said, let's do that again. And he played it a second time and she let me dance with her a second time. Oh my God, great memory. Oh, amazing memory. Um, in terms of incredibly snoozy 80s movies, were you out of Africa or Gandhi? Gandhi. Oh God, they both were Samanex. Why? I just had this, I don't know, it hit me. Ben Kingsley's performance hit me. I remember thinking that it was one of the, it was one of the first big epics that came out in my lifetime. You know, I knew about Lawrence of Arabia and Bridge Over the River Kwai, all the great David Lean movies. But this one felt like it was happening in my time. And so when I saw it and understood it and appreciated it and was moved by it, especially the structure of how he was killed in the beginning and then you go back in time and you watch the progression. And it was so long and it held my attention the whole time. You know, I, I became a kind of a thing for me. I've watched it many, many times. Well, I agree. It was so long. Not to the rest of it. Okay, um, you had one adjective correct. Uh, in terms of comedy films, were you big or Fish Called Wanda? Fish Called Wanda. Me too. Why? Jamie Lee Curtis, Kevin Klein. Yeah, Kevin Klein was never better. John Cleese was never yes. better. The script was fantastic. Michael Palin made. I mean, it was. I, I watched it recently, and you know, it holds up beautifully. It's just a really tight, extremely well-made movie. I think Jamie Lee Curtis is brilliant in that movie. Brilliant. Never sexier. True lies, maybe, but not as funny, not as irreverent. Like, she was just great. Yeah, and just turning on her fake personality. Gosh, she's brilliant. Um, you probably didn't have this, but were you Nintendo or Sega? I always wanted Sega, but I got, my parents were, you know, we got an Atari, and that lasted for way longer than most other people had their Ataris. And then we finally upgraded to a Nintendo. But Sega was the one that everybody wanted. And uh, oddly enough, when I got on ER, they used to do this thing at Christmas time where the executive producer would put all these numbers, 1 to 14, in a bowl. And you, everybody, the producers and the cast, would pick a number. Number 1 was the most expensive gift. Number 14 was the least expensive oh, wow. gift. And Tony Edwards pulled the trip to Hawaii, number 1. And I pulled a Sega Genesis player, number 14. And I was so excited <laughs> to finally get one. I got one on my first year on ER as a Christmas gift. This is High School Versus Now, where we find out how much my guest has changed since high school. You find out that our town had an extra cast party after closing night, and you actually weren't invited. How would you have felt in high school? Terribly left out, but I never would let anybody know that I was left out. It would have hurt me extremely badly, but I would have gone and done something that made it look like I didn't care. You wouldn't have even told your friends 
I'm assuming they were all at the party. Oh, I guess you're right. <laughs> okay. Well, how about that's nowadays? You find out that Leverage Redemption has a standing brunch at Hugo's in LA every week, and you've not to be invited yet. <laughs> I think that comes with a sense of relief. I think I worked <laughs> enough with you guys all week. I'm taking my weekend off. Thanks very much. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> different reaction. Excellent. Okay, so now it's senior year, and they just have to do the musical. You're a good man, Charlie Brown. You auditioned for it, and you do get cast as Woodstock, completely silent. How'd you feel? I'm going to steal this show. <laughs> wow, that's so interesting. You immediately knew that's really what you would have thought. You wouldn't have been like, I guess I'm not talented. You thought, I'm going to make the most of this and be amazing. I used to love the scenes where they didn't give me any dialogue because I just go, I'm going to take this raft from underneath everybody. And I got, I, I was so ambitious and uh, clever that the scenes where I had the least locked in stuff to have to do gave me the freedom to just bounce. And they would cut to me every three seconds if I had no lines. You mean the audience would cut to you? No, the editor, because he's like, look at Wiley's doing. Look at Wiley's doing. That's a great reaction. Look at him. He's mouthing their dialogue. That's great. Like, I'm just, I filled that performance in silence better than I did when they'd give me lines. Did any other actress pick up on your extra acting during the silences? Yeah, I think Clooney was known to steal a move or two from me back in the early days. Okay, moving on. How about, speaking of ER, so now this is nowadays, they're doing a reboot of ER, and of course they want you on it. For the voiceover at the beginning. That's it. <laughs> hmm. Would I do it is it, or how would I how feel? How would you about feel? It? You could do it from your iPhone in your house. <laughs> how would you feel? I think I would feel that we're missing an opportunity. <laughs> no, I mean emotionally, dear. I'm not asking about your career. I'm talking about emotionally. How would you feel that they're not interested in having you back on the show? Oh, I think I would be really hurt. I think I would be really hurt again because I always, I mean, but that's my own egos. I, the pilot episode of ER is my first day in the hospital, my first day on the job. And, you know, 15 years later, I become chief attending at that hospital and take it over. So I, in a lot of ways, I feel like I bookended that narrative. And so to not include me in, in an, but only in a sort of touchstone way to sort of pay all my, would feel cheap and I would feel hurt. But would it be high school style where you still wouldn't tell anybody that you were hurt? No, I have people now to express my disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> Good. You have matured. I'm applauding you from New York City. Okay, my final two questions. If there is anyone in high school that perhaps is listening, what would you like to say? It could be the entire student body or one student or one teacher. Is there anything you'd like to finally say to them? Hmm, that's a great question. Uh I'd like to say thank you to a couple. There's three guys in particular. Am I allowed to say their full names? Or? Yes, we'd love it. David Klein, Paul Schneider, and J.P. Manu. Three guys I went to high school with, all three wonderful performers, all of whom I thought were way better than me. But knowing that they were better than me, it really inspired me to figure out how to get better, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I've always looked for that guy in the room who I feel is smarter, more talented, like just so that I have something that's still to aspire to. And if I hadn't had those guys silently being competitive with me, they didn't even know. I don't know that I would have been able to achieve anything. Wow, that's really interesting. It doesn't, 
you don't feel less than when people are quote unquote better than you. It makes you work harder. It's very interesting. It's a good quality. Well, I acknowledge that I've had incredible opportunities that most people don't have. So I didn't start the race with everybody else. I've had huge opportunities that most people don't ever get. But when I start the race from here, I like to believe that I can finish it in good time, if that makes sense. Like, I'll earn my win if I'm given the opportunity. Well, it pushes you. I'm impressed by that because I think it would hold me back. I'd feel too intimidated, but it sounds like it pushes you to be better. I think I wore it as a chip. I like it when somebody underestimates me or when I, when I feel, I perceive that I'm being underestimated because it gives me a little extra fire. I always heard that, like John McEnroe is one of the few tennis players that played better when he got angry. <laughs> and I understood that for some reason. It focuses you and gives you, oh, you think that was out? Okay, I'll show you what in looks like. And you try a little extra harder, but without that line judge being a sort of avatar of resistance, you don't get that next gear of performance. It's really interesting. I, I totally wish I had that element. Um, and if a 15-year-old Noah Wiley were listening through some time-space continuum break, what would you say to young Noah? It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. You worry so much for no reason. It's going to be okay. You're on a path that will take you where you want to go. Despite all of your anxiety and all your fears, it's going to be okay. Aw, I hope he heard that. In conclusion, thank you, Noah. I'm applauding you. <laughs> thank you very much, Seth. I feel <laughs> naked and revealed. Aww. Seth Rudetsky's Back to School is produced by Sarah Esikoff. Our theme music was written by me, Seth Rudetsky, and sung by me and Maggie McDowell. Our band was me on piano, Mark Schmid on bass, Carrie Meads on drums, and Jim Hirschman on guitar. This episode was mixed by Sarah Esikoff. 